Hey, and welcome to the Writeability Podcast. I'm Katie, and I have two guests today, James and Jeannie. And yeah, today we're going to talk about language and grammar and fun stuff like that. Uh, you guys want to introduce yourselves? My name is James Espinosa, and I am the English faculty, teach English here. been teaching for about 12 years, I think, now here at COS. So I am a veterano now, I think. And I'm Jamie Moore, also English faculty. I'm, I'm a little younger than James. My hair is not gray yet, but I, <laughs> but I got a couple in here. Um, I've been teaching for seven years, going on my eighth year, and excited to have this conversation. Yay. So the first thing I've been asking people, kind of starting with a little bit of a personal question before we move into other stuff. And so my first question, since we're talking about language and grammar is, do you guys have any standout experiences or from school that like shaped who you are and you're like your feelings about language and about grammar? No, no, I'm kidding. <laughs> no, absolutely not. Let's move on <laughs> to question number two. This is already going up. I think for me, it's not so much uh, at school that shaped my view of language and grammar or just sometimes the difficulties I have with language and grammar. Well, actually, maybe there is. Maybe I have like two, I guess, experiences. One of them is kind of like an ongoing experience because, um, you know, my uh, I'm first uh, generation college student. First language is Spanish. That was my home language. For my parents, there's always this idea of wanting to speak better English or stronger English. And for my mom, particularly, I remember even as we were kids, she would always, you know, try to take the language courses and English courses, sometimes even buying these videotapes that they would sell on Spanish language television that promised you that you would, you know, learn how to speak English within a year and so on. And so there's always this sort of idea that, you know, learning English that was going to open up all these like economic doors. The other one was, I think it was probably until like about eighth grade or so that I kind of had a, a very stronger, more pronounced, I call it like a Chicano accent. And I remember later on, even like with high school buddies, people would be like, man, what happened to your accent? Which always kind of weirds me out because in my head, I still kind of hear it. But this idea that somehow the accent kind of denotes lesser command of English as opposed to not having an accent to me was always kind of a weird sort of idea because again, kind of where I grew up, I mean, everybody had accents. It just kind of really made me consistently think about, you know, what do we deem as strong English? What do we not deem as strong English? Those are great stories. Thank you, James. Yeah. That's so good. Jamie, can you beat that? <laughs> <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> I can beat it, but I totally agree. Uh, language has always, always been racialized in my world. I grew up in Northern California. My town was mixed racially, but I was surrounded by folks in a Black community. So I grew up speaking AAVE or African-American vernacular English. Coming from mixed parentage, even my white mother who was kind of assimilated into that culture and that community, she would also kind of pick up some of that dialect. And, and these are folks who had families that grew up in the South and migrated to California, right? So, so there's almost this like Southernness to the language. There's ways that words are cut off or words are switched in AAVE. You have a completely different grammatical structure to the point where if you don't know what those grammatical patterns are, you can't understand the meaning of a sentence. But of course, we've never thought about AAVE as its own language. We've thought about it as an accent or a dialect. So for me, language was racialized and language was connected for me to power and access. 
I shifted through different racial worlds constantly. And in school, I saw those clear racial lines. And I learned very quickly who I was supposed to speak my proper English with and who I could speak honestly with, right? Who would criticize me and be like, you can't speak that way. And the other folks who would be like, okay, I understand where you're coming from. And one way you might want to switch your language from this to this is this way, right? Mm -hmm. So I actually had folks in my life, both in a formal educational space and also in a community space that were directing me on how to code switch to change parts of my language depending on who I was speaking with or what environment I was in, kind of for my own linguistic survival. Um, and that happened kind of all the way through college. I went to do my master's degree in a program that focused on creative writing. And I had very different kinds of mentors. My very first mentor, who almost discouraged me from even pursuing my graduate degree, said, if you're going to be successful, you have to let go of this language. You have to let go of your people to be a true academic. Even though I'd made it that far in my education, that still affected me. That still made me question, do I even get any of this writing stuff? Luckily, after that, I had a mentor that said, no, you are actually in your own way kind of multilingual. We just never talk about it that mm -hmm. way. So that's definitely shaped the way I think about grammar and how we use language in the classroom. I think we should take that as we move into talking about what we do in the classroom, because I think like, you know, the experiences that we grew up and stuff shape how we teach. And I think that's a good thing for students to remember too, is like, we are not just clean slate videos teaching you things, right? We're people and like the experiences we had make us who we are as teachers. So with that in mind, how do you guys talk about language in the classroom? O sea, yo les empiezo a decir en español. O sea, les empiezo... <laughs> Just the code switching here. You know, I think what, that's one of the things that I try to do in class, try to embrace some of my code switching, particularly because I figure some students also are coming from bilingual households. So one of the things that I try to kind of establish is sort of like a safe space for different languages in the sense of really code switching in the class as well. You know, like sometimes when I'll be teaching, I'll say certain concepts in Spanish and can code switch there in class. So that's one of the ways that I try to embrace some of the code switching and try to challenge this idea of what does it mean to be an English speaker, right? And that, that there's room in that speaking of English and in the writing of English to experiment with language because language is dynamic. I mean, you know, words have come and gone throughout the years and the influences of different language. And that's what language does. It evolves to capture the culture of the people, right? And as our U.S. society continues to evolve, there has to be room for language to do that. One of the other things I think that I try to think about is, you know, how do you make sense of that, though, in the written language in terms of like when you're going to be submitting a paper? That is where I have difficulty sometimes as an instructor, to tell you the truth, is to what degree should I teach students that you're always trying to kind of perform to an audience? I think the way I'm trying to pursue this more and more as an instructor is to understand that proofreading and so on, what you're trying to do is create an aura of professionalism for yourself, get your foot in the door so you are able to get the most out of your talents, right? So I think I try to teach grammar and stuff as just this idea of proofreading to establish some sort of rapport with your audience. Mm. And that you are still, you know, always aware that you're consistently performing and that you're consistently code switching and that we do this in various aspects of our lives. You know, sometimes when we're talking with little kids, right, we're talking with our brothers and sisters, when we're talking with our grandparents, when we're talking with one friend compared to another friend. And that is kind of the way we navigate all cultural borders. 
it's a really big question for me because I feel like the way that I'm talking about language is evolving. Mm. When I first started teaching, I was absolutely in that space of, I learned code switching to survive. I'm going to teach my students code switching to survive. Language is a performance. But then also what I notice, and, and maybe what I want to challenge and push a little bit is how like that performance is assimilation. Right. So I assigned an article called The Problem with Linguistic Double Consciousness by Rashan Ashanti Young with my students. And I did that thing where I assigned something before I had read it. Um, believe it or not, sometimes we do that. So as I was reading it with my students, I was pacing, <laughs> I was cursing, I was confronting this huge truth that I had been asking my students when they stepped into my classroom to perform with me. And that felt awful. How do we navigate that space of like, yes, like there's this sense of like professionalism that's associated with language. There's this sense of performance and switching into like a standard American English. And we associate that standard American English with success. But one thing that is true for me is, as I mentioned it in my own personal experience, that standard American English is also racialized. That's also for me associated with a kind of like supremacy of language. Where I'm at right now is kind of in this in-between place. Dr. Young talks about the idea of code meshing. How do we integrate language that feels native and important to us into that academic writing? And that's also difficult, right? Because then we're still doing that code switching and we're making space and, and almost giving permission for folks to question it by legitimizing it, by mixing it with the standard American English. But James is also right in that we can't forget who our audience is. I talk with my students very directly about like, what is academic writing? Let's demystify that, you know, because so many students walk into, especially a college classroom, they're like, okay, time to put on my performance hat. Often like when we have that conversation, they're already there for it. They, they know what that is. They've been doing it. They just don't have the name for it in the way I did it. They know how to put on that fluffy language or log on to thesaurus.com or whatever, right? To, to make it sound academic. But when we talk about language and grammar as power, then we can think about how are we shaping our language intentionally to reach as many people as possible and those people include the people in our community. A scholar like Bell Hooks is a really good example in her article, Keeping Close to Home. She talks about going to Stanford and being really disillusioned by the way some of her peers just felt disconnected to their communities and, and used college to disconnect even as first-gen students. And she was like, absolutely not. Some of the smartest people I know are the folks in my community. And just because they speak or think a certain way, it's just a different way of knowing. So how do I make my writing something that can reach my professors as much as it reaches my uncle? But that's complicated. So for me, a lot of this teaching is contextual. A lot of it is making informed choices. And if you're going to make a choice like Anzaldúa does, which I know James teaches you know, along with me a lot, She's very, very intentional about when she's code switching, when she's using Spanish versus English. She doesn't explain it always, but there's context to understand why using all of these different languages 
is important to her scholarship. And that's what I'm working for. I, I cannot emphasize enough how difficult it is to try to figure out as an instructor and just as, a, as an instructor of color coming from the background of being bilingual, of having different Englishes that, that we use, the difficulty of trying to walk a line where you don't feel like you're selling out. I mean, to just be as blunt as possible, what are you telling students, right? How they should feel about their language. And I mean, this is the way I think about it, is how many times I've heard stories of my mom when she was at work, because eventually she was working at a store. And how many times, I mean, I've heard her tell stories about feeling shame, right? And to what degree do you contribute to that by sometimes emphasizing certain grammar ideas or certain ways to write? Are you creating a culture of shame that doesn't really embrace that beauty of language and that evolution of language? I mean, I, I lose sleep over it, to tell you the truth, particularly also because you understand how racialized some of these realities are for our students. You know, I've read like surveys and stuff where they've surveyed HR managers and so on saying like, what do you look for in resumes and stuff? And even sometimes spelling and typos, they'll be like, well, if there's a certain amount of spelling and typos. I will look at a resume. And they've done studies, right? Where they have like similar resumes with just, a, you know, a black sounding name or a Latino sounding name and how many less callbacks they might get. And if you put that on top of possibly having some spelling and typos or whatever, I know as a child of immigrants, part of the idea of going to college is this promise that you, you will have more economic freedom, right? And that you, you know, won't have to do some of the labor that maybe some of us grew up doing. And to what degree do you navigate that line, right? To what degree do you stay true to some of your linguistic roots, still stay true and don't you know, start creating this sort of performance that now doesn't, isn't just a performance, now becomes a part of you and you start losing some of that soul of yourself and I wish I always had kind of answers. And I think like Jamie, it's always this consistent retrying to evaluate within that performance when you're writing, how do you also integrate some of your authenticity, right? Some of your cultural authenticity in there. That is difficult. Yeah. Hey, speak of losing sleep, I decided I need a whole other degree about this. Like this is exactly what I'm studying. And, and that's why like I'm, I'm both like so obsessed and so passionate about it how the heck do we navigate this, right? For me, my language is joy, it's anger, it's pride, it's power. And so when, especially when I'm standing in front of a classroom of my students, when I feel myself kind of drop into my language, it's a moment where like, we're building up to something really important and I can't find another word or I can't find another phrase. Like, and, and I've seen that happen with you too, James, especially working with students like our Puente students. For me, one of the ways to figure that out is to study the models, right? We have some of those scholars and my goodness, we need more, but we have some of those scholars to, to study that. But I think if, if we look at the work of Anzaldúa or Bell Hooks, we see writers contemplating these exact questions. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, even when you look at some of these writers, you know, some of the ways that they, you know, really try to blend also not just language, but genres, you know, um, mm -hmm. you know, with Anzaldúa, sometimes, you know, she'll be doing something that's theoretical and then she'll break out into like a poem. Yes. Right. And that's kind of part of her pushing the boundaries of saying, you know, maybe we need to rethink the way we even look at what a paper should look like. Right. That's some grammar right there. That's grammar. <laughs> like, yeah. Right. I mean, maybe we need to consistently rethink. And I guess that is my biggest worry, I think, overall is, 
you know, when students are out there, you know, trying to get their first job out of college, because I think that is one of the toughest, also one of the, was one of the toughest parts of my life, trying to figure out that professional world. And how do you navigate that? How do you get your, your foot in the door when there's all these obstacles to just be able to even start really establishing some sort of voice in some sort of institution, in some sort of organization? But, but isn't part of that getting your foot in the door, having the agency to explain the choices that you're making? Yeah. And, and, and I also understand that point of like, sometimes your foot isn't even in the door. Sometimes the door slammed in your face before you can jam your foot in. I, I hear that. I also maybe, especially in terms of grammar instruction and, and working from this place of like radical optimism, <laughs> right? Of like, <laughs> there will be that opportunity to explain. I mean, when I first started teaching, some folks were giving me the side eye, like, what the hell are you doing in there? I had someone very directly tell me, how do you teach English when you speak like that? And at first I was shaken, right? And then I was like, well, what I'm going to do is tell you exactly why I'm the kind of person who needs to teach English. And I was already prepared for being challenged at every step of the way. And, and I think that's how I approach it with my students too. There, there's almost kind of this, I don't want to say militancy uh, about the way I have this conversation. But I say like, if you're making a choice that is different, be ready for folks to challenge you on that difference. And then when you're able to explain your way through that, to explain why it's connecting you to this larger academic conversation, if you know who those scholars are, whose shoulders you're standing on, then like you get to wield some of that power on your own terms. Does this always work? I don't know. But a lot of that, like Katie mentioned at the beginning, is very solidly based in my experience. I know that my students will encounter folks that completely fundamentally disagree, but I want them to feel like they can argue for their choices in a way that's grounded in what I think rhetoric truly is. You know what I've heard people say? Está loca la Jamie, dude. Está loca. I mean, no, I'm kidding. I'm totally true. kidding. It's true. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, no. <laughs> And I have to also be honest, I think for me in my head, you know, how do we make some of this work more anti-racist? How do we make some of this work authentic for students, right? Is also, I think sometimes some of the grammar issues that students face and sometimes also this sort of like procrastination. I think just being like careful with what you're writing because you're right. You should be able to back up whatever choices you're making in your writing. And part of it that I've been trying to also emphasize with students is that, you know, I remember like, uh, you know, my, my parents always consistently still with me. I mean, I started working when I was young, starting at like 10 years old, you know, and I remember this kind of work ethic, this like immigrant Mexican work ethic that was instilled in me. It's like, regardless of what you're doing, you know, if you're sweeping a floor, you want to sweep it and make it well, right? You want to, you want to do your job well. You want to do your job well. You want to be, you, you want to be proud of whatever work you're doing because it's important work that needs to be done in society, right? Regardless of the work. And I think that's the same thing too. I try to come in with that sort of like idea with writing that, you know, regardless of the choices you're making, you want to do them well. And that is part of the proofreading strategy. Like, okay, is this really the word you want to use? Did you take the time to just go back and read over your writing? You know, did you take the time to just run spell check on the computer and stuff? I think some of it is just taking the time to just make sure that what you're writing is really the product that you want to put forth, right? And showing some, some pride in your voice. It just deals with time management and it deals with a skill that is going to be important, not just in writing, but just in life right? Yeah. Like be detail oriented, be careful, right? If you're going to be my nurse, if you're going to be my mom's nurse, I want you to double check like how many <laughs> milligrams that was, 
right? Okay. Like, I don't want you to be like, oh, fuck it. Yeah, it was 0.2 milligrams. No, it was 0.1. It makes a difference, right? Like, like being, you know, detail-oriented is a skill. It's a soft skill. And it's power. It's power because, I mean, I, I, I agree with you with intention. I, I struggle sometimes, as you mentioned before, like, what languages do I not have access to thinking about like tech language and stuff like that? I think about how some scholars make the intentional choice to have their full name like lowercase, right? As Bell Hooks does. Sometimes that text to speak is very intentional, right? If, if I typed out a paragraph to my homies in a text message, they'd be like, tell me in two words, you know, like, why are you, <laughs> why are you acting up? And maybe this is, you know, my own like anger issues and stuff. But I think about writing as, as a fight as an argument and like, where is my power and, and how can I wield it? So when I'm teaching grammar, I'm thinking like, what do we need to fight for and how can we use grammar to do that? When we're talking about periods, like make them stop. Where do they need to stop and think about something? If you're using a semicolon, you have to let them know these two ideas are inextricably linked. And if you separate them, they don't make sense in the same way. If you're capitalizing it, then you're giving it respect. Why does it demand its respect, right? We're having a whole conversation in the larger linguistic community about capitalizing the B in black, right? Because blackness is an identity. It's not just a descriptor. Where are we wielding certain powers? Where are we like fighting in the actual grammar of a piece? And one thing I've had students do before is like code it, like as you're reading, when are you actually pausing? Because sometimes we don't, right? We're used to this media culture. Even if you, if you check out like those YouTube videos with those jump cuts, right? There's, there's no punctuation in a jump cut, right? It's just like this continuous comma, comma, comma. What happens if you watch a 15 minute video like that? You walk away and you don't know what you left with. But if you have someone who's pausing in certain spaces, they're intentionally pausing to make you think about something. When there's a paragraph shift, we're doing that same thing. So as a reader, take a piece and code it. When are you stopping? What are you experiencing in the white space? What are you experiencing when you have a piece like Jamaica Kincaid's Girl? That is one long sentence. When do you want your reader to be overwhelmed? When do you want them to breathe? This is where grammar is important for you because that's where you wield your power. Yeah, that, that's a really good point. I mean, that idea of intentionality and meaning and power and realizing what are some of the tools that you have to empower yourself. And I have to admit, I mean, like you're saying, I think that is one of the ways that I've been trying to marry some of those inherent issues with code switching performance and, you know, quote unquote, selling out. Other strategies I've had students do actually, and this may be if, if you're listening to this out there, hey students, here's a tip. Here's a tip. What's up students? You know, like we have our cell phones. Like I think one of the things that's really interesting and I hate listening to my voice because I feel like I sound really squirrely. So I'm not going to listen to this podcast because I feel like I sound, no, like, I, I feel I sound like a Mexican chipmunk. I feel like, no, yeah, I'm going to listen to it just so I could like cringe, right? Like, like puke. But so, the, so, you know, one of the things is like listening to yourself read your own writing, right? Like we have our cell phones now. And sometimes, you know, we I've done activities with students where, you know, we'll use our cell phones to just read our writing and just read it out loud, right? And then let it sit down for a while and then, you know, put on your headphones and then go back and listen to yourself read it. So you could, you know, catch those pauses. And even as you're reading it, you know, once you start noticing yourself stumble against the words and you're just like, well, what did I even say there? It's like, okay, well, there's a sentence. It's just unclear, 
right? You want your sentences to be clear. So you know you're going to have to work with that sentence. And the whole idea of, of the strategy is, you know, it's not to reach perfection, but just to push yourself to be clear. You know, and the reality is with, with all right, there's no such thing as perfection. Something could always be said better, can be constructed better, stronger, but it is to push yourself to be clear so that message gets across and you get the most, you know, power for those words you're using. I'm, I'm kind of in, in the same camp about clarity, right? I, I think what you described in the listening back to yourself is, is really important. And I think this is where peer review, where sharing parts of your draft with other people is really important. I try to remind students that your audience for your writing isn't necessarily me. It's the person sitting next to you. We've done... Um, little sessions like speed dating type sessions where it's like take your main ideas and explain it to someone and if you like first clue that there's something wrong with the clarity is you having trouble articulating it right are you having trouble reading it then we have to talk about what are what's maybe some phrasing that's unclear um how are you structuring parts of your sentence that that might not make sense I just realized we're 45 minutes in and I have like 15 questions. (laughs) This is great. Like, I'm just like looking, but you're like hitting them. For me, there's a difference between, for example, error and like writing with an accent. Like, and I think we're hitting on that. Like there's one thing that just like mistakes, but there's another thing like writing with your voice. Right. And I think that's intention. Like we should fix the things that are just errors, but the things that are choices we should play with. The other thing is like, I, I know that James mentioned like shame associated with grammar. And I also find a lot of students are super anxious because of past trauma they've had with their writing. What do you say to a student who is just really freaked out? Uh, what do you tell that student who paper one, they're scared as hell? <laughs> For me, I consistently try to, you know, tell my own story, right? In terms of the community I come from, and that I'm very aware of all the different struggles people have as they're working through their language acquisition, because we all have so many very different experiences, you know? Some of us sometimes go to schools where unfortunately they haven't gotten strong enough instruction, right? Language acquisition is patience. I'm still working through some stuff and sometimes new issues pop up. I feel like I never really had too much issues with like your, your, and these like often confused words. And now I'm noticing it pop up all the time in my writing. Listen, the language acquisition isn't a destination. Mm-hmm. It's just, it's consistent being willing to play around with language yeah. because that's the way language works. There's no need to necessarily feel like it has to be perfect. I mean, we see authors consistently, you know, rewrite final drafts, right? I always kind of go back to the idea of musicians that, you know, remix their own songs. Yo! Yeah! It's a remix! Like, <laughs> like, that's just, I mean... That's just the way all art works, right? That's just the way, and there's things, there's reasons why, you know, songs were so great that they get remixed, you know, 12 years yeah. later, because it's like, dude, what are you doing with a classic? That's why, right? I'm gonna make it even better. Yeah, I'm so with you on that. I would say to students, I am also still in that learning phase. If anyone tells you they are an expert, they're lying. And they're lying because we're supposed to pretend that we're experts. That's what they tell us when we become teachers is that Mm -hmm. we are supposed to pretend like we know everything, we don't. And sometimes we don't understand why you're making a certain linguistic choice until you voice it. Your voice is important. You're here, so your voice is important. If you're showing up, your voice is important. We can work with something once 
once we have ideas down on paper. If we don't have them down on paper, there's no learning that can happen. Writing is a trust process. Writing is like kind of bringing your heart to somebody else and it's super vulnerable. Submit to the, <laughs> to the remix process, man. Yeah. Amazing. You guys want one more before we do the yeah, wrapping up stuff? It. Let's yes. do it. Okay, so I'm, again, I'm gonna take a student's perspective. Let's say they're in your class, they're really comfortable with their language, they're expressing your own voice, they go to that next instructor, and the next instructor insists on some sort of standard American English, papers getting red pinned again. How do I approach that as a student? I'm confident in my own voice now, and I'm running up against people who don't wanna hear it. Do you want the practical answer or the <laughs> activist answer? Both. <laughs> I, I think the, the practical answer is, and, and the activist answer is communicating with your instructor, is knowing kind of what they're expecting and, and what, what the rules are to navigate. Sometimes, this is not always true, and, and this is where like that learning process for yourself comes in. Sometimes those restrictions can actually provide you some, some creative freedom, right? If you know I have to write in a certain way, it's almost like a creative challenge that you can approach. However, if that voice is being stifled, then I think there's an opportunity to, to question things. And that might make an instructor uncomfortable. I would say measure what your comfortability is in challenging your instructor. If you are not passionate about that choice, be open to learning what those standard rules are. Sometimes we do have to learn some of those rules to understand why and when certain scholars break them, right? There has to be a conversation. And too often, even you know, as, as loose and, and like receptive as I think I am, I, I might be stifling a student's creativity. I might be stifling their voice, their grammatical choices, how they understand something. I might not be explaining something in a way that, is, that they can understand. And I don't know that unless a student is communicating with me. Yeah, I think that's some really, really good advice. I mean, adding to that, I would strongly suggest that when you have the next writing assignment, that you as a student take the time to go to the professor's office hours, probably be like virtual Zoom hours, you know, until we eradicate Corona. So never. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So we're stuck like this forever. We're just going to do podcasts now. We're just quitting teaching. Like get a draft just so you could go and just so you could open that door for communication. I think, that, and again, you're going to run, a, run against some professors that, that may be e extremely traditional and there's very little wiggle room. I mean, th those professors are out there. Let's just be real. They're, they're out there, right? One of the ways that to open that line of communication is I think sometimes those professors that are going to be really that rigid, I think they have this idea in their heads that students don't care, yes. right? And I think they're often working from that assumption. And I think when a student will take the time to go and actually be like, and they'll go and they'll bring in a rough draft and be like, I want you to look at this and tell me, what do you think, mm -hmm. right? And I think that will sometimes soften that sort of professor to be like, oh shit, this student cares, right? Yeah. Now, if this consistently happens, even after you consistently do that, then I guess, you know, if it, if it comes like a very clear cut that, that, you know, professor has some sort of like major grudge, then obviously you want to talk to a dean, right? I mean, but I feel like for most professors, right, when they see that initiative, I think they'll be pretty open to hear some of the 
some of your process and they'll notice how you're working. And if anything, you'll, you'll end up getting a better grade on that paper. You know, very rarely have I heard of students taking the time to go talk with professors and stuff that professors will not, you know, start working with that student more. And I think part of it is just because they see that buy-in and they'll start getting invested in that student. Mm right? Because they're so used to so many students not reading those comments. And honestly, just even that fact of the matter that you did that, usually, usually, I think we'll start opening that door of communication. Mm -hmm. And if not, then you just storm off and just punch them in the face. No, I'm kidding. Don't do that. Don't do that. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, don't edit that. Just just don't punch them in the face. Go for the throat. Go for the throat. No, I'm kidding. So we're all like, we're all hella geeky about language. That's why we're we're in this discipline. Take that risk to to trust that the person who is your instructor cares about those kinds of choices and why you're making those choices. And maybe you're introducing them to a new choice that will blow their mind. And I have to admit, you know, one of the things that I wish I would have done more, and I think I still did it quite a bit, but the professors, I did eventually have the courage to go up and, and talk with them and so on. I feel like I learned a lot from them, yeah. you know? Even the ones we don't like. Yeah. Even some of them had some like crazy stories that I was like, I thought this dude was an asshole. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. I think for a lot of professors, and particularly if they already kind of have that aura, they probably don't get that many students come in. Mm-hmm. When I did take that initiative to go, usually those professors were really receptive. Mm -hmm. And sometimes those professors are in that place where they've never been told their voice is important. Mm. As as a PhD student, I'm recognizing that where I have a professor who is a woman of color who is brilliant and she started the class by talking about a hierarchy. And the only thing I could think, because I have the perspective as a teacher, I was like, who hurt you? Who told you that your voice didn't matter? Who told you that you have to perpetuate this language hierarchy? Who told you that you have to model yourself after people that don't recognize the value of your voice? And let's have a new conversation that values both who you and I are. And that, yo, that takes some courage. And I'm not saying that every student has has to like prepare themselves for that deep of a conversation, but Sometimes the folks who are the most rigid are modeling from other folks who didn't give them the choice, who didn't know that they could experiment with language. There is a language center that can help you in terms of go to the writing center and get some feedback and they'll help you find certain patterns. Yes. Right. And work with you in terms of finding certain patterns in your, in your sentence writing. They have student tutors there and they specifically deal with mostly proofreading and grammar issues. And the whole idea is for them to help you understand maybe some of those comments and look for some of those patterns. And as you build up the courage to kind of talk to professors, that is one way that you can start building up the courage to do something about it Mm -hmm. in a, in a safer space. Possibly you do have the language center in Kern here in the Kern building. And online this coming semester. And coming to you online. Online. So I've been asking one like final question because podcasts do that sometimes. But um, so guys, both of you, what are you learning right now? I'm learning about the founding of the community college actually and, and what principles help guide the kinds of instruction that community college is focused on. And I think this is important to me as a student and as a scholar, because I very intentionally teach at a community college. 
I was a community college student and the classrooms that I had in my community college were much more fulfilling for me than when I transferred. And they were important because this was a space of experimentation. This was a space of reinvention. So learning kind of what those principles are and how the idea that there is a space where anyone can come and develop and discover their academic identity is integral for me to this finding your own voice and learning how to use certain tools, especially in writing, for expressing yourself in the most powerful ways. I, I you know, I, I really appreciate this conversation, you know, when we were talking about consistently questioning this idea of code switching and performance and authenticity. And I love being able to have these conversations because they help ground me, right? Because I think that these are very tricky waters to navigate, these borderlands of language. And, and I love having these conversations because I, I don't always know how to navigate them. And so I'm pushing myself to continuously question it, right? And I hope that I, I continue to question it. And when I feel like I have the answer, that I think about this side of it and this side of it and this side of it. I and mean, going back to the other point that Jamie said, right? If you think you're the expert, guess what? You might not be the expert, mm -hmm. right? Like then, you know, and I think that's part of learning and being a lifelong learner is just realizing that you have to consistently be critical of your beliefs and the way you're doing something and be willing to experiment and be willing to fail. And because that's how you learn, right? And how you consistently be like, I'm trying to do it better this way. And I'm trying to do it better this way. And I think this is working. And why well, I didn't think about that. And I think that goes with writing. I think that goes with teaching. I think that goes with life. Thank you for having me be a part of this conversation and to really think this as we begin this new semester and really kind of think of how I'm going to navigate this even again, right? Yeah. This, new semester. this is community building, Katie. I know. Already I'm learning from other people, just like having these conversations and making a space for them. So yeah, thank you guys both. I'm going to have to have you back because you're both obviously amazing and also made me not have to talk like at all, which was kind of fun. Um, thank you. And yeah, I, I really appreciate your time though. And if you guys want to talk to any of us, we're all in the COS directory. I'm Katie Babarian. This is Jamie Moore, James Espinoza. And also, if you have any questions that you want explored on here, if you want us to talk about a certain thing, you can email me. So yeah, thanks everybody and have a great day. Bye.